All right, everybody. Happy Friday. I hope uh, I hope your week was a good one and a happy one. Um, have a few questions here already starting, so uh, um, let's see what we got here. When do you think the FHFA will address its plan for the shareholders? It has been frustrating with all the talk of existing conservatorship. They never mention what they're thinking about the shareholder, except they'll be wiped out if needed. What happens if not needed? At what point do you think they were start talking about this? They seem to be talking about the planned exit conservatorship, but never seem to mention anything about what happened with the shareholders. Well, they can't exit conservatorship unless they deal with the shareholders. That's the simple fact. So, you know, uh, as we've said before, there's no way to raise the amount of money they have to raise with the potential $10, $20 billion liability hanging over your head. There's just no way. So they're not talking about it because I don't think they want to have the conversation. You know, it's if, you know, so you're before the media and you say, you know, we have to deal with existing shareholders. Da, da, da. Well, that's going to be that's going to be like red meat to, to a lion. Right. What do you mean? What are you going to do? They're going to wipe out. You're going to you're going to you're going to settle with them. I mean, that's that would open up a huge can of worms. So. I think they're not, they're not taught, and this is, you know, this is just my guess. I, I, if I was, I wouldn't talk about it either until it was time to announce what we're doing. I would avoid the conversation at all costs, which is basically what Calabria did last week at, in, uh, in front of Congress. He goes, yo, if we have to wipe him out. I mean, he didn't, you know, it was sort of an off-the-cuff sort of comment just because he didn't want to be having that conversation right now. And I don't, I don't blame him. I wouldn't either if I was him. So, you know, they appealed... Um, so interestingly enough, they appealed to the Supreme Court, uh, which was a very interesting tactic of people reading a bunch of stuff into it. So Tim Howard, who used to be the um, CFO of Fannie, he had, uh, this is what he had to say about it. Uh, my speculation would be that Treasury is looking for some legal cover to negotiate and to sweep. But waiting to file cert until the, after the 5th District had issued its mandate, Judge Atlas's process can move forward unimpeded. And filing cert will lead to one of three outcomes. Cert is denied, most likely. SCOTUS takes the case and finds for plaintiffs on the APA issue, second most likely. SCOTUS takes the case and finds for defendants, least likely. The last outcome would enable Treasury to drive a much harder bargain with existing shareholders. The middle outcome would give Treasury the excuse of giving plaintiffs the remedy they sought, unwinding a sweep, which would pay down the liquidation preference and result in more than $12.5 billion in future tax and other credits to each company. That's the overpayment. So it'll be $25 billion between the two of them. And the first could enable Treasury to say publicly, we tried to get a definitive ruling from Supreme Court of the United States, but declined to review the case. So we are proceeding to settle with plaintiffs in order to move forward with removing Fannie and Freddie from conservatorship. And that's an interesting take. And that makes, for me, that makes complete sense. Um, you know, Calabria and Mnuchin, should they decide to settle, um, which, barring this being heard in the Supreme Court and defendant's case being denied, um, which I think is highly unlikely given the rhetoric that's come from the Supreme Court of the United States regarding certain issues like this, um, uh, it, 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 it gives them, you know, either they take the case and rule for plaintiffs, they got to settle. Either they send it back to Judge Atlas, or Judge Atlas' case is going to have the remedy. they got to settle. So it gives them, when they go before Congress and announce this, and those in Congress who are anti-shareholder, um, 
you know, and, and, you know, they want, they want to see every hedge fund wiped out um, in this one. So they don't profit, but, you know, they fail to realize that you know, these hedge funds run municipal unions, teachers unions, police unions, firemen unions. They, they run union pension funds. They run money in these pension funds for these things. So wiping out them effectively, in, you know, damages their constituents in a lot of, a lot of ways. So it's um, short-sighted at best, completely ignorant at its worst. Um, but this would give them cover with those people like, look, hey, we didn't do this, right? We didn't enact the F4 sweep. We've been following the law that was enacted by the previous administration. So collaborate with Nushi can stand and say, we didn't do this. Now, the courts have fought and the courts have ruled that what the previous people did was against the law. It was illegal. They couldn't do it. They shouldn't have done it. Okay? You know, and, and so in, in Calabria has been very smart. He's been very specific in saying, I do what the statute says. When it comes down to it, I will do what the statute says. And the statute tells him to send the money every quarter. So he's doing it. Right? He's following the statute. He's been very, he said that probably 20 times the other day in front of Congress. So he's clear. He's like, look, hey, I've told you guys, I'm going to follow the statute. The statute said this is what should happen. I didn't put the statute there. I didn't, I didn't enact the statute. So, but I'm following the previous administration, the previous uh, ru- uh, ruler, <laughs> uh, head of FHA. I'm, I'm, I'm following what they, to- what they put down. If you want the statute changed, change the statute. But I'm, follow- I'm doing what I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. So they, and Mnuchin's doing the same thing, right? Like I'm just following the way he's supposed to do it. So they have complete and total cover, both for the actions they've done politically and for the, if they decide to settle, when they decide to settle, they're going to have to settle um, to do it uh, from a legal standpoint. So it's actually, it's a very smart take on it. And it's a very smart way, you know, let's assume it plays out that way. Uh, it's a very smart way for them to be handling that. Um, so I, I, you know, as far as the when, you know, they got to announce capital levels first. And in conjunction with capital levels, then they're going to say what they have to raise or what they have to be at in order to um, exit conservatorship under consent decrees. Meaning they can exit conservatorship, but there's certain things they're going to have to do until to, to, they build the capital levels that Calabria and Mnuchin want them to have. And those will be announced in conjunction with each other. Once that's announced, and you know they said in the coming week, so I'm, I'm guessing it'll be in the next week or two, but probably before Thanksgiving, um, that'll come out. And then once you get to that point, like, okay, how do we raise some money now? And then you're going to have to start having conversations about shareholders and raising capital and things like that. Um, is there any is there any black reason behind which someone is delaying the Fourth Amendment? And Calabria and Mnuchin are saying something to justify the excuse for delaying. We should find the reason behind the delay. It's it's government. It's it's government. You know they they government just moves at a snail's pace. It just does. It's you can't go to the DMV. I mean it's. Try and get anything done with that requires permitting and things like that. It's it just moves slow. It's just the way it is, and I and I don't I don't think they're intentionally delaying. I think they want to get this done before the next election. I seriously, I honestly believe that. So they want to get it done, but it just it you know it just takes forever. You're not this isn't of this isn't a question of um, filing bankruptcy in an ice cream shop. Right, bringing it out of bankruptcy. This is these are the largest financial institutions by assets in the world, and they're intertwined with public and private public markets, and they're intertwined with the government. 
it, doing anything with them is is a Herculean task in and of itself, much less what they're trying to accomplish. So it just it's going to take time. It, there's no way around it. I don't think there's anything nefarious there. Um, do you think that to raise U.S. one hundred billion in two years is possible? GSC models. Um, I don't know that they're going to need that much. That's the number that's been thrown around a lot. It all depends on what capital levers are required to to um, to maintain. That's what it, that's what it depends on. So, and I don't think it's going to be that high. Um, I just don't. For the first time in about five years, Williams is trading at a cheaper valuation than Kinder Morgan. Why do you think Williams has become cheaper? If we wanted to own just one pipeline right now, would it be Williams? So as far as valuation goes, I think um, it depends how you value them because I tend to go by the because they're selling assets, you know, and a, and a, a multiple to EBITDA. That's how these things are. That's how they're measuring asset sales. So if you if you do that, they're both selling assets around 13 times EBITDA to, you know, to other pipeline companies or to private equity who wants the cash flows, et cetera, et cetera. There, Williams, and I, I don't know what it did today, but Williams yesterday was selling at about 10 times EBITDA, and Kinder Morgan was a little over eight times EBITDA. So on that basis, Kinder Morgan's a little cheaper. Um, and they both are yielding 5%, you know, give or take a tenth of a percent either way, depending on the prices due in any given day. Um, similar depth. They're very similar companies. I like owning both of them because Williams pretty much dominates the East, and Williams dominate. I mean, I mean, sorry, Williams. I should say dominates like the Northeast, the Transco, the Central, Central U.S., the Texas, the Mexico. That's Kinder Morgan. They dominate that area. So by owning those two companies, you pretty much touch about seventy percent of the natural gas in the U.S., and you're still getting the five percent dividend on both. Uh, Kinder Morgan's dividend is going to grow 25% next year, right? They're going to go up to $1.25. Williams is sticking low to mid double digits. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's not a huge difference. I like Kinder Morgan because every time the stock hits 20, Richard Kinder's buying hundreds of thousands of shares. He's probably spent $120 million of his own money this year alone. It's probably over that now because he bought more yesterday, um, buying back his company stock. So, you know, that's that's a good thing. I think, you know, at some point in time, a 5% dividend that's covered two times, almost by almost two times, I think uh, Williams is like 1.75 and Kinder Morgan is like 1.89 times covered the dividend um, that are self-funding. You know, they're not using debt for their projects. You know, there's, there's going to come a point in time where they reach the capital levels they want to reach, the um, debt, debt ratios they want to reach that, Either they start buying back chunks of stock or those dividends go even higher. I, my guess would be I think Kinder Morgan is going to start buying back chunks of stock. I mean, if he's buying it at 20 and it's yielding the 5%, you know, I don't think going to 5.5% of the dividend or 6% is going to get people in. I think you need to start buying back chunks of stock, which, which he'll do. He's done before. And, you know, Williams hasn't talked too much about it. They're, they're a little behind, I think. Uh, maybe like a quarter behind Kinder Morgan in, in getting something like that. Um, and, you know, so they both have tremendous growth projects, right? Williams is that Transco pipeline. I mean, Williams has got 
years and years and years of expansions to come off that in, as far as either both feeding to it or coming off it and sending it places. Uh, the thing's just, it's the biggest pipeline in the United States. And there's not, the second place is not even close. Um, just an amount of tra- um, volumes that they can transport. Um, they're both getting into LNG in the Gulf. Uh, those projects are being built out. And Kinder Morgan, Kinder Morgan owns the Permian. And, you know, they got a 2 billion square foot a day pipeline just went in. Another one coming, another one after that. They have expansions going on in the, in the Permian. So, you know, they, they, these guys have lots of places to spend capital um, where they can they can grow their business and grow their earnings and things like that. So, I, I don't, I don't, I couldn't really pick a favorite. So, I think, I think what it comes down to, the, Kinder Morgan is a little bit cheaper. Um, I think Williams has a slightly higher dividend. So, I mean, it's kind of like. And that's, I mean, as I said before, that's the reason I own both. I don't have a favorite, but I like being in a position where natural gas is becoming the feedstock of choice for the country. Uh, it already is for electricity. Um, you know, there's the vehicles. And then now now we're looking at liquefying it and exporting it, these massive LNG terminals that are being built on the Gulf. So, and you know, there's plenty of it. So, you know, they're not beholden to the price of natural gas or more beholden to the volumes and if we're going to start exporting huge amounts of lng then they're going to need a lot more pipes to get it get it get it to where it's got to go so there's you know years and years and years of of steady growth here high cash flows high dividend payments so i i mean i i like both of them so um what is your take on this bloomberg article fanny's Watchdog says focus is on exit strategy, not lawsuits. Mark Calabria said network sweep might sue them, but senior preferred liquidation preference issue remain unsolved, and litigation with investors might continue. I, I, yeah, like I said before, I think they're not going to talk about the lawsuits until they absolutely have to address them. They're just not going to open up that can of worms. Um, you know, they don't want they don't want you know the stock price. They don't want to look like those stock price start whipping around. You know, they don't want those in Congress who are anti-shareholder. They start saying, you're just trying to enrich your friends. And, you know, they actually asked Mnuchin if he owns stock in Fannie and Freddie, which is just a stupid statement. I mean, these guys have to liquidate all their holdings and put it in trust before they take office. So ask him if he owns it was just moronic. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, they're just not going to talk about it uh, unless they're forced to. Um, what is your take on Treasury appealing Collins to the Supreme Court of the States? Okay, we just we just addressed that. Um, tre- why does Treasury appeal? Will Scott take the case? I don't know if they'll take it. I think you know th- there's people are split on it. Um, but the Thompson, David Thompson, for the plaintiffs, he he tends to say that you know when you have conflicting circuit court opinions, and we do in this case, um, then usually the Supreme Court takes the case because they're the final judge of what the law is. So, you know, and I think plaintiffs are very happy that it got sent to the Supreme Court. David Thompson said he hoped that that's what happened, and it's what happened. So it's the quickest remedy um, than, you know, than the other ones. And uh, it'll once and for all be the definitive word on, on the legality or illegality of all this. Um, does it look for settlement or max profits you preferred? What is the implication for Preston Commons? It, well, I mean, it's... The implication is the same as the Fifth Circuit, right? It's going to be very good for them if the Supreme Court takes it and then we win. If the Supreme Court takes it and rejects the Fifth Circuit, um, it's bad. And that's, you know, and that's what it is. And I don't think that Treasury is going to 
I don't know. I don't think they're going to settle. Before, a decision is made from the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court takes it, I don't know. Um, if they don't take it, then we'll see what happens then. But um, what is your take on FHFA releases, new strategic plan, a scorecard, one quote from the plan? As a result, Section 3 emphasizes the need for the enterprises to carefully scrutinize and optimize their balance sheet exposures to focus on serving their core guaranteed business with maximum capital efficiency. In addition, the enterprises must enhance their ability to assess the returns on the capital necessary to support their assets and risk. Enterprises must be able to assess whether the results are commensurate with private market return thresholds because the statute mandate to do so in the imperative transition to the enterprise to eventual private ownership. It's just a long-winded way of saying they're not going to be able to be capitalized like they were in the past. That they're going to have to hold much more capital relative to the asset base, just like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, as other financials do, and you know, Calabria will set those capital levels uh, shortly, and the capital levels will be the same for all those in the um, mortgage insurance business. So, and that is one thing that argues against higher capital levels because regulation, right? Regulation, highly regulated industries tend to be a little more monopolistic because the barriers to entry due to the regulations are so high. You know, look at your most regulated, railroads are highly regulated. There's only, there's only what, five major railroads in the U.S.? Maybe, was it four now? I don't even know. Um, utilities, right? Highly regulated utilities. There's very few. You know, there's, it, it, it makes it difficult for a new small company to come up and be nimble, whatever, because they can't be because the regulatory burden is so high that it just stifles um, it stifles competition in a lot of ways. That's not the intent of it, but it does. Look at the cannabis industry. Highly, highly regulated. But if you have a cannabis dispensary in your state, you're printing money for the next two years because of the regulatory hurdles to open up a cannabis shop. You, know, you can open up a haircut place in probably three weeks. It's, it's over two years to open up a, a cannabis dispensary. So that regulatory hurdle is a barrier to entry for most people because it's costly, it's long, it's drawn out. And then it, it creates a little monopoly for those who are already in existence. So he can't have the capital levels too high because what will end up happening is those considering going into the market just to say, I'm not doing it. And banks that make a win, like, you know what, I don't, we don't want to have to raise our capitals even higher now. We're not going to do it. So then you end up with Fannie and Freddie the private market by themselves, which is exactly what he doesn't want to do. So he has to do things that fosters other people wanting to jump into this market to, to accomplish his goals, and he can't price them out with absurd capital levels. Um, what is your take on Tilson's recent comment of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, common intrinsic value to be eighteen fifty a share, way too optimistic? I haven't, so I haven't seen it. I saw the comment, but I haven't seen the presentation. And I don't know if Whitney's talking about five, six, seven years down the road under certain assumptions, um, post-conservatorship kind of thing, um, or if he's saying that he thinks in a recap they're going to be 18 bucks a share. So I don't, I really can't comment other than to say um, the, um, the presentations that I've seen that price the common share in double digits are doing so down the road. Um, they're not pricing that, you know, hey, we're going to, we're going to, you know, convert the com 
for it to for it to come in and do a recap, it's gonna be done at eighteen bucks a share. I don't believe anybody in their rational mind thinks that, but down the road, I think they've had I've seen estimates between twelve to twenty bucks a share for the common. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. I mean it's a lot depends on how things are structured to make those assumptions. So I you know, whenever I've seen those, the range is usually between, you know, twenty bucks and twelve. You know, there's a huge range um, of outcomes based on how this recap goes, how it's structured, what happens. So, and that is one reason that pre-conversion, pre-exit of a conservatorship, I liked the preferred shares more because I'm still under the assumption that I'm going to get converted at par, which means my comp, my preferred shares are going to more than double. And I think the common shares get hurt because the the capital raise. But I think that I make 100% on my common or higher from, from current levels. It's, you know, it's obviously much higher than that from when we first bought in. And then I participate after the recap with the common and that march toward those double digits. So that's why I like the common investment. And I don't have a problem with anyone saying 10, 12, 18 bucks a share for the common. I just don't know how you get there with a really high degree of confidence in that given the all the unknowns right now you know it's um it's just too many unknowns for me to say yeah 18 bucks sounds about right um you know it could be way off it could be way off in either direction so um you know it's kind of like the whole uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago the whole pg and the electric you know people were saying it was trading in this amount of book and the stock had gone up and my question then was we don't know the eventual liabilities we don't know how much is going to cost to fix these wires? And now we have another fire that they think was caused by more PG&E um, uh, uh, wires, which is going to be more liability, right? And it's going to be more wires that need to be fixed. So it's it's when you're dealing with unknowns like that, um, it's it's really hard to put a value on things. So it's, it's almost and go back to the BP. You know, Whitney actually did a brilliant job uh, with BP, and he made some good money on that. You know, there was, when that BP, when that oil spill in the Gulf hit, the one they made the movie on, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Um, oh, there was a huge, you know what, remember, there was a massive, massive explosion on the dock, and they had the camera down there just watching the oil spew into the, the Gulf Coast. Um, you know, people were saying that they were done, they were going to go bankrupt, da 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 and uh, Whitney did this great analysis. Um, and, you know, of course, this was months later after they'd capped the spill, right? So, okay, the spill is capped. So we have an idea how much oil got out. We have some degree of knowledge based on historical settlements of law- lawsuits based on oil spills. What's going to be the, um, the range of outcomes for um, lawsuit amounts? And you could, you could determine that pretty accurately. And then you say, okay, well, then this is going to be paid out over 10, 20 years, like the XM Valdez was. So he actually did a brilliant job and made good money on BP. But, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't buying the stock in BP when oil was pouring into the ocean. And I think people buying PG&E stock right now are buying PG&E stock while it's still starting fires. It hasn't fixed its wires and it's still, you know, pouring oil into the ocean. For that's the analogy, and not that they're doing it. But that's the analogy. Um, 
you know, investing in the banks back in 08, 09 during all the lawsuits, you know, that's why I found those documents and I put them on the blog that, hey, you know, yeah, you're going to sue Bank of America for $100, million, $100 billion dollars. And people are going to say they're going under, they're going under. And I had a long argument on, not argument, long back and forth online with uh, Henry, um, the guy from Business Insider, the guy who founded Business Insider. I don't remember his name. But he was saying they were toast. And I'm like, no, they're not. Because you look at the history of settlements, right? They sell, they would typically settle for one to two cents on the dollar. And they would pay out over, and they would settle five years after the suit was settled and pay out over the next two to three years. So you're talking this is two thousand. You're talking 2017. Some of this stuff was going to be settled and done. And you take 100 billion dollars, you reduce it down to two. The Bank of America had 33 billion dollars a year going through its bank every year in bad times. You realize, okay, this liability is nothing. Yeah, it's not great. You're not going to get a dividend hike soon because of it or any buybacks. But you're certainly not going to go under. And the stock was priced for extinction. So this is the same thing. So um, I don't even know how I got on that tr that tangent. Oh, Fannie Mae common stock. So this is this is again, this is an unknown. You know, we don't know how this is going to be restructured. So I can't I can't say anyone's estimates of value are are highly accurate or highly accurate or just fucking crazy because I don't know the structure of it. He could be hundred percent right. He could be off by ten bucks a share, but we don't know. So um, why is there no share buyback on TPL? Do you think we will have more buyback after converting to C Corp? So, uh, so for, I don't know if they're going to convert to a C Corp. I guess at the end of the day, if it doesn't make financial sense to convert to a C Corp because of whatever taxes might be involved or things like that, then don't convert to a C Corp. But for the love of God, give us the disclosures of a C Corp. You know, again, another earnings report came out. All we got was revenue and profit. No detailed expenses, no nothing. You know, it's 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 the the AK, and that's all they're required because they're a trust. So, you know, if if we stay a trust but get disclosure, proper disclosure, then you know what? That's great. If we go to a C corp and do C corp disclosure, that's great too. So it's not necessarily a hard question converting to a C corp. Converting the the he the argument for for converting to a C corp was that it would force the trustees at the time to give proper disclosure. Now, if they'll agree to that without converting, because converting would cost a billion dollars and lost tax, you know, whatever, tax revenue or tax write-offs or, you know, based on, you know, old valuations of assets that have to be revalued or whatever, then that's fine. But give us that disclosure and we'll shut up and go away. Um, I, why do I think there's no buyback? I, I think there's no buyback because there's a couple possible reasons. Everything's kind of on hold until this committee finishes what it finalizes what it's going to do right so they're probably keeping cash on hand in case they have to convert and you know that conversion you know it's not going to be cheap it's going to cost millions of dollars to do it's not just like you go you don't just go and say hey we're a c-corp now you know you got to file all the paperwork and the documents and for regulators and all that kind of stuff so it's going to cost millions of dollars to do so they're probably conserving cash for that is one um number two uh, another reason that maybe they haven't bought any back is, uh, um, yeah, I completely lost my train of thought. I don't know. So um, I, I think they're just probably conserving cash is, is the reason why. And it may be an agreement that they have, um, and I could go back and look at the document. This was the second part I was going to make, um, that everything's on hold till after that. 
that they're not doing any buybacks and things like that. It's part of the gag order, whatever that, um, they're, you know, company funds are not going to be used that way. And C, you know, they could be plowing money into the water business. You know, they're not taking on debt. So they're not, they're not loading the water business up with debt to expand it. So if they're not doing that, they're expanding it through the cash flows and the profits of the company. Right? So maybe they're putting money towards that instead of, um, instead of buybacks right now. So, and again, lack of disclosure, we don't know where the money's going, so we have no idea. So, but those are the three most likely reasons in my mind that uh, there might be no buybacks. Um, what do you think of the risks of U.S.-China trade war and upcoming presidential election in the stock market? I mean, I, I don't, I still really don't consider this a, a massive trade war between the U.S. and China. I really don't. I mean, I, I, I think I think it's a question of relativity. You know, we're not going isolationist with the world. Uh, we're playing hardball with China, and people are adjusting their supply chains. For those of you who own Callaway, if you look, um, you know, Callaway started diversifying from China um, last year when this trade war started he- heating up. Um Based on their estimates, uh, it's going to cost them about $7 million in tariff costs this year, three next year. And by um, 2021, they'll be completely completely um, diversified away from China. It won't cost them anything. So I, th- that, I think that's the goal of Trump right now is to lessen America's dependence on China for things like that. And it's happening. And you know everything sort of readjusts. There's always a sticker shock at first. Uh, but eventually everything readjusts and, you know, it's sort of in a pause right now. It's in both parties' benefits to um, to come to some sort of resolution. You know, the China is being affected far worse than we are. If you're looking at financial numbers, um, you know, we're economy grew almost 2%. And that's, you know, that was, you know, pretty much the Obama years pre-Trump. Uh, Growth. It was between you know one point eight, two point three. That was kind of like waffled in and out of that uh, for you know a long, long time. So you know we're not we're not below one percent growth, and you know we're, the job market's not collapsing, and retail sales are still soaring along. Auto sales are so strong. So you know people want to talk about the effects of it, and you know they've been minimal, if any. Um, I know there's you know there's some specific businesses that are being hurt, you know toy companies and things like that, but you know. It's just not been the um, catastrophe the media hoped it was going to be, I guess is the best way to say it. They're just doing their thing. So, um, so oh, presidential election. You know, I don't know. It's one of those things where everyone always says the other side wins. It's going to be a complete disaster, a complete nightmare. And, you know, I know... This is what happens. So the Democrats are running super, super far left to try and energize their base. And whoever wins the nomination will then drift back to the center. Because if you don't get the center, you can't win the election. The Republicans go far right in the primaries to appeal to the base. Then the general election, they drift kind of back because you can't win without the center. Right, the far left and the far right are going to vote who they're going to vote for. 
no matter who, you could run a ham sandwich and say it's a conservative Republican and the Republicans vote for it. You can run a turkey sandwich and say it's a super liberal and the, and the, the far left's going to vote for it. You know, you need that middle 45 to 50, that, you know, 45 to 55, you know, everyone's going to get 45%. You know, Mitt, Mitt Romney got killed for what he said, but he was 100% right. It's like roughly 47% every single year are going to vote the same way for each party. That's 90, that, you know, that's 94% of the electorate. It's that 6% in the middle that decides everything. And that's it. So they have to drift back for the middle. The rhetoric's crazy right now because they're trying to, you know, whoop up that as much of their base as possible. Um, but then, you know, you got to go back to the middle for the election. So, you know, everyone always wants to talk about, you know, they're going to kill business and kill whatever. But, you know, I think what's more, what, what's more important, to be honest with you, is one party not having both houses and the presidency. As long as we have a split Congress, it's all, does, I don't think it matters who's in the White House, to be honest with you. Because they can't... You can have the most radical person in Congress, and I don't care if you think radicals left or right, doesn't matter. If Congress is split, they can't run along an ideological platform and push things through. You know, we can't get we can't get Obamacare if Congress is split. You know we can't get um, you know if you hate Trump's tax cuts we can't get that if Congress is split. If Congress is split, right? But we got both of those because Congress was all the one way, aligned with the presidency 100. percent So you know if you if you get I don't care who you, who gets elected, if you have four years of a split Congress, then they're going to have to work together to do anything, and whatever comes out of there is not going to be um, f- far left, far right, ide- ideologically driven. And, you know, it, it usually works best. I'd be interested to see a study. I would be really interested to see a study. Um, and I'm sure it's out there if anyone wants to find it. On stock market returns during presidencies in which Congress was split the majority of the time. You know, Clinton, Clinton dealt with Newt Gingrich the whole time, and the stock market did amazing. Obama had, you know, all, all, he had a, a blue wave his first two years. Then he lost it and had to deal with Republicans the last eight years, or the last six years, and the stock market did just fine. I think if you look statistically, I think the stock market probably did better his last six years on yearly average than did his first two. And I bet you, if you went back to other presidents, you would find something similar, a similar outcome. So, so I, I think what's this, what's there's one saying: um, government is best when it governs the least, or something like that. And you know, I believe that excessive regulation is a tax. You know, they don't call it a tax, but it's a tax. So, uh, 11. And this is the last one. I'll, I'll go back and check if there's any more, but I didn't see any more. So, uh, <laughs> I love the one-word questions. It's hysterical. This one just says cannabis. So, yeah. I, I, so, actually, it's for those of you who listen to this who are involved with it, uh, we've actually done something pretty cool. So, we put together 
this investing syndicate for can for cannabis. Uh, we've raised over a million dollars so far, and it, the group is majority uh, value plays members. So that's really, really, really cool for me. I think it's a really great thing. So um, we're we're investing in a holding company, and then we're going to have extra money laying around that we're going to invest in individual deals. Uh, like medical dispensaries and stuff like that in the state of Massachusetts just because the economies of them are just I've never seen anything like it in my life so um, so it's going really well I'm going to do a, a separate podcast about this because I keep getting a lot of questions and um, uh, people reaching out about it and rather than taking up time on you know, these you know portfolio or company specific things I think I'll just do a separate one for that um, and what I'll do is, you know, instead of, it usually says, you know, number 24 and the date, it'll just be, you know, cannabis podcast and the date. So if you have no interest in it at all, you don't have to listen to it. And if you are interested in it, you can listen to it. But I'm going to do a, a sort of like an interview of Mike Scott, who's the chairman of the company that we just bought into. Um, and, you know, he can explain the why he got into it, what he's doing um, answer, you know, I can take questions ahead of time, like I do for this, and uh, we can sort of give him those questions ahead to answer them. Um, he can talk to you about the economics of cannabis and, and mass and other places of what's going on with there. You know, how to, you know, you can, you, you can use, you can use a Roth IRA to invest in cannabis <clears throat> and not pay taxes on some of the obscene gains that are out there. And that's, that's a compelling thing to, let's say, I can buy this cannabis buy a piece of this cannabis dispensary that is going to eventually be bought out for probably 20 times revenues in a couple of years. And those profits will be non-taxable because I can do it through a Roth IRA. And the process for doing it is incredibly simple. And actually three of the people in the syndicate have done it that way, including myself. It's a very simple, very easy process. Most people just don't even know they can do it or how to go about doing it. So we can talk about that and stuff like that. So, um, I'll put some thoughts together. I'll do a blog post. And I honestly have to obviously check the schedule, but probably won't be this coming week. It'll probably be the week after. Um, we'll just do a long, I'll do a long form Q&A with him and let him talk on the podcast and um, keep it separate. So if you have no interest in this stuff, you could just not even listen to it, delete it. And if you have interest in it, you can save it. And that may spur other conversations or, you know, other interests or things like that from you guys. So um, I think that actually is a pretty good idea. So that's, um, that's all I see for questions for this week. Yeah, that's it. All right, everyone. So hope, uh, everyone has a fantastic weekend. I think, uh, it's daylight saving Sunday. So, uh, don't forget to turn your clocks back so you don't show up for work an hour early in the morning. <laughs> All right. So uh, have a good one, everybody. Bye now.